Don't make me assume my final form! Lucas late had to go get something real quick, and uh, I'm very proud tonight to have someone on that I greatly respect and is a is has been a veteran in the paranormal community, and that's Mr. John Zaffis. And John, how are you doing tonight? Welcome to Conspiranormal. Well, I'm doing very good, and thanks for having me on. Absolutely, uh, kind of been. Uh, <laughs> Kind of been a saga, but uh, got you on here and uh, just wanted to talk about, you know, kind of your life in the paranormal and uh, what it is that what it is that you do. Um, so just kind of a basic introduction for some of my listeners that may not know who you are. Uh, you know, who who are you and uh, how would you describe what it is that you do? Uh, well, been investigating for going on. 41 years, um, always just had an, uh, an interest in the paranormal after I was 16 years old, had an experience and at the foot of my bed, seen a transparent figure and was able to figure out uh, it was my grandfather and that's what got me interested in the paranormal. I wanted to start researching and starting to figure out some of these different things that occur and happen and back then we just had books and you just had the opportunity sometime to speak to people in the paranormal not like today where everything's a lot more open but um that's what intrigued me about it and then as the years started going by demonology fascinated me because i wanted to understand do do people really go through these scenarios do we really uh deal with something that could possibly possess an individual and that's when I started uh, studying demonology and over the course of the years I started getting involved with cases and um, uh, assisting and helping out with uh, exorcisms with all different spiritual people out there Buddhist clergy rabbis priest ministers the Native American and finding and getting involved with all that you realize that within the spiritual realm that um, just can and does afflict people regardless of their belief systems or their cultures. Okay, so what is demonology? What what does that mean, and how did you become involved with studying that? Well, uh, demonology is a term. Um, it's a person that studies a lot of the different things, uh, cult practices, uh, different type of religious values, uh, deities, demons, jinn, all of the above. And it's important to uh, get an understanding of all these different types of things to get involved with it. And like I said earlier, um, I was interested in knowing if people really could fall victim to possession, and that's when I started studying it. And, you know, again, over the past... Uh, quite a few years been involved with it and uh, being involved with uh, what I call pure possession and people that are truly fallen victim to possession. 
So you started out assisting your aunt and uncle, uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Yes. Uh, many years back, got involved, um, mentored under Ed for quite some time before I even started getting involved. And um, what I mean by that is a lot of times just going up to his house, sitting down talking to him about the paranormal, or he'd come down to visit, you know, uh, down at the house to see my mom, which is his twin. And um, just getting into in-depth conversations. And then, again, uh, I think it really triggered when I explained to Ed that I had this happen. Uh, it was just around the time framing I seen my grandfather is when their mom had passed away and she lived with us, which was my grandmother. So, again, that that's what really intrigued me with the whole thing. And then, like I said, as the years started going by and going on, I just got involved and was curious about the uh, demonology end of it, what it was all about. Okay. What was, you started... Uh you started out with them, uh, assisting them in their cases. What were what were some of those uh, cases that you worked on with them? Well, probably uh, quite a few. There, there's many of them that are right. really even cases that are talked about publicly. But I think uh, the biggest one I worked on with them was in 1986, and that was the haunting in Connecticut um, when that went public and everything. And that was, that was quite an intense case and. There was a documentary done on it that aired on Discovery hundreds of times, and a few years back they did a, a movie on it on uh, some of the things that occurred in the home. So that's probably kind the biggest the, profile one. Right. What was kind of the biggest, like, uh, or the, the specifics of that case, what was happening there in that house? Well, um, Carmen and Al basically had uh, rented this piece of property, and they had moved in uh, with their several children. And um, they had custody of two of their nieces, and it was a former funeral parlor. And during the course of it, the oldest son, which was uh, diagnosed with cancer, um, they were, he was going back and forth for treatment and everything, um, he started experiencing things and started talking about things and uh, started tormenting the younger siblings and it really escalated out of control and it reached a point where he just started getting very violent and he went to attack one of the nieces and Carmen and Al had made a decision at that point to have him removed and once he was removed the rest of the family members started to experience things in the house and then Carmen realized that he wasn't just making all these things up that they were indeed occurring and they were happening so you know as Things started to escalate and get out of control. Carmen did call in her local priest. He did come in, did a blessing, but it didn't work. And that's when we got involved. And we ended up spending nine and a half weeks um, working on that case. Now, today I no longer spend that amount of time in these homes because you've got to be very careful. You can end up falling victim right along with everybody else. Uh, yeah. when you're in them for that length of time. So you do have to be very careful. It was a pretty intense case. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, and from everything I've witnessed and experienced in that home, um, there really wasn't anyone that fell to possession, but it was a severely, severely demonic piece of property where they had a very strong infestation of it. Is there any idea of the root of how that infestation got to be there? Because uh, I've always wondered about that case of, you know, it being a a former funeral home or a former funeral parlor, um, why exactly that would be a place where 
something like that would happen, a, a violent haunting like that. Well, again, too, most funeral parlors aren't haunted. But, right. you know, the majority of uh, times you'll find with any piece of property that there could have been a tragedy or a murder or something, but there were a couple of alleged stories that tied in that, you know, there was a possibility that there were things going on behind the scenes when it was an operating funeral parlor. But I've never seen any hardcore evidence. Carmen Reed was able to come up with a few things that tied in that led to suspicions that there were things practiced in there that the energy basically had uh, remained. And then the house was empty for several years. Then when Carmen and her family moved in, they always will target the weakest one, which was her oldest son, Philip. And we feel that's what part of the root of the problem was that transpired and had occurred in that house. What Did you have any experience in that house yourself? Several. Or, yeah, there were several different uh, experiences that uh, transpired, but the major one was one evening when I was sitting down in the dining room documenting the different things that occurred and happened uh, throughout the day. Because you have to remember back then, you know, you didn't have that uh, type of equipment like we have today. But um, it was the month of August, very, very hot. All the doors and windows were open, and it got very cold in the house. And you know, anytime you get that psychic cold, as most of us know it, it's when your energy starts to get drained from you and things are about to occur or happen, usually, when that happens. So I had gotten up from the dining room table. I was going to see if anybody was awake, but everybody was sound asleep. And um, I looked up the uh, staircase, and I seen something very transparent, very large. And it started to uh, manifest, and it started to come down the stairs, and it had a disgusting smell to it. Mm. And at that point, it just basically said, do you know what they did to us? And that's when I fled that home. But I did end up going back three days later uh, to finish out the investigation because I knew at that point in time that the Roman Catholic Church was sanctioning a exorcism to be performed on that property. So I did go back. <laughs> was there a moment in that period of time between you had this experience and you went back to that house that you were just like, no, I'm not doing this ever again after seeing something like that? I made my mind up for the three days that I uh, broke total contact with everybody that I said it was just too crazy, this stuff's too real, these things do happen. And I made a decision, really, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't take phone calls from anybody, but a very good friend of the family, uh, Bishop, uh, had given me a call asking me what had happened, and I explained everything to him. And I said, that's it. I said, I'm done doing all this. I said, I want nothing to do with it anymore. And at that point, he says, well, if you give in and you don't investigate anymore, John, it basically had won. And I didn't quite comprehend it at first, and then I started to think about it. That's its main objective, is to scare you enough or do something so that you won't do the work anymore. And if you give in to things like that, they basically do win. So the when it said um, to you, do you know what they did to us, do you think that that was something that may have actually have occurred in that house? like something like violation of the bodies, possibly? It's a good, it's it a good, yeah, it's a good possibility that uh, something did transpire. I mean, several, you know, rumored stories and different things are tied in with it. But again, you know, there's just different things that lined up that it's a good possibility that did occur. You talk about uh, a lot about the stages of possession, and I believe that uh, starts off with oppression 
and uh, moves over usually moves into like a full scale possession. Uh, what are those those stages that you see that usually happen in these cases? Well, we we usually look at things, and it's usually um, the infestation is the first stage. That's when it moves into a home, starts yeah. to wreak havoc. Lights can be going on and off. People get depressed. They can't sleep. They can't eat. They can't function. And then the next uh, state that usually does transpire is the oppression state. And that's when an individual really gets worn out, and they're to a point where, you know, uh, they're not even uh, functioning within the people in the household. They really can't sleep. They can't function at all. And finally, you know, they'll start hearing voices or a lot of things are occurring. And unfortunately, that's at the point a lot of times people just say, you know, do whatever you want, just take me. And that's when a person can fall victim to possession. Because nine out of ten times when a person falls victim to possession, they usually have to grant permission for that to occur and happen. Uh, so those that, are the three stages. In that infestation stage, um, is it possible that uh, someone would have dreams uh, involving the demonic or involving a spirit? Well, uh, the dream state is a very common state throughout uh, whether you're dealing with human spirit or something on a negative level and it could happen during all three stages of it uh it's the most easiest way for spirit to be able to communicate with individuals is in the dream state so that's uh, the majority of the time when people have a haunting going on or different things are occurring um within the paranormal realm it will come to them in a dream state okay um talking about cursed objects. I know that you have a lot of them in your museum there in Connecticut. Yes. Um, I've always wondered how exactly an object can be cursed. Is it just like an object has a, has a cursed place on it, or is it just in a vicinity to where something awful happened, or something like one of these violent hauntings happened? How, how exactly does, in, in your viewpoint, does that work? Well, uh, there's different uh, categories as far as that goes. I mean, a lot of items from a haunted house doesn't necessarily mean they has energy attached to it. But what yeah. you find the majority of the time is personal belongings or something that meant a lot to an individual. Energy can be attached to it. And, you know, people can own it and have it, for, you know, and it can uh, move into different homes and there might not be any issues, but it could take one individual that owns it or, you know, uh, and they could trigger the activity with it. Now, uh, religious items and items used in occult practices are different because energies are sent towards them. So, therefore, it could be done on a positive or a negative. So that I view and look at and look at so totally differently when dealing with those types of objects because that's done with an intent and purpose so therefore I would handle it a little bit differently than I would just you know a haunted pair of shoes or a haunted dresser or something right would, would that include like I mean you're talking about religious objects would that include something uh, from Christianity, such as, or specifically like Catholicism, with like statues or icons, stuff like that. Oh, it covers uh, absolutely everything. I have uh, religious items uh, from many different faiths and practices: Native American, um, 
Christianity, Buddhism, you name it, and, you know, energy can be attached to an item, and it can also be done where it's something on a negative, because it's totally the opposite of positive. So, therefore, religious items you will find used in a lot of different things, and can the intent that the, that is set forward for it being used on a negative is a very strong and powerful thing. Okay. Uh, how can you or do you dispose of these objects? Well, one of the key things is a lot of times if we don't have the opportunity to uh, remove the item, a lot of times I can throw it into a body of water. I will bury it. There are several different things I do over these items before I do these two processes. I never break an item or never burn an item because if there is indeed something attached to it, it can gravitate right towards you. It's going to go near a main source immediately. So you got to be very careful. Now, once the items, if I do bring them back to put them into the uh, museum, there's uh, prayers, there's bindings, and there's different things that are done over these items. Sometimes it could break the energy, or sometimes it's binding the energy to the item, because especially if it's something on a negative level, those are things that very seldomly could be broke. What is your purpose of keeping some of those items in the museum? I would think that I would be kind of, you know, freaked out by having stuff like that. Well, yeah, and I, I agree. Um, it's very popular today. Uh, yeah. there's, there, there's a lot of collectors out there that buy haunted objects and put them into their home, and I'm very much against that. I have a big barn on the property, and that's where all the items are. Um, years ago, just basically, it just started where we were removing them, and I put them in a small, tiny barn I had on the property. And, you know, a few years back, I went, you know what? I want to tell some of the stories about some of these items. And that's when I decided to set them up into the bigger barn and, you know, put them on display and talk about the stories and, you know, use uh, the different scenarios to do different things so that people can get a better understanding on, you know, how these items affect people, what they do, and, you know, uh, try to help educate and do the best that I can with that to get uh, people knowledgeable that we have haunted people, haunted houses, and we have haunted objects. Right. Okay. Luke is here. Yeah, I just kind of stepped in the middle. I had to go get <laughs> my headphones. This is Luke. Hi. <laughs> hey, John. Uh, I don't know if you guys already were talking about it or not before I got here, but... Uh, what are some of your most interesting items, or what are some of the items that you have that stand out? Yeah, it's it's very difficult um, because a lot of people, you know, often ask me that. It depends. I'll walk around in the museum, and you know, it, it when it comes into what could be a favorite item or something of that nature, it's difficult because they all have unique stories tied with them. But I think, you know, um, like the Blessed Mary, where the hands melted off of it. Um, that I have from the haunting in Connecticut uh, that mm. happened during an exorcism uh, that was transpiring in there, and the hands literally just melt off of it. Um, again, uh, ritual items. I have statues. Uh, you know, there's um, furniture. There's uh, a tremendous amount of dolls. I have what we call a deathbed, something I learned about a couple of years ago, that in uh, some of the countries they would uh, have a bed that was created, made totally out of wood, and uh, they would um, basically 
exhibit the, the dead people on it. They wouldn't have them in caskets or anything. So um, a person had purchased that, and they had a tremendous amount of problems in their house. So, I mean, there's so many different items, and they all have such unique stories. Uh, right at this point in time, finally, after uh, several years, getting back uh, to working on the book with uh, several of the items that are in the museum, uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley and I have been working on that for the past uh, couple of months to try and get the stories done and get them into a book form and finally get it out there. <laughs> we had Rosemary on last year uh, talking about her uh, book about the gin. Mm-hmm. She's a great lady. Mm-hmm. Fantastic woman, very knowledgeable. Is the barn open for tours to the public? No, I do not have it opened um, at this point in time. Uh, it's difficult because I still do a lot of research. I still do a lot of investigating and conventions and colleges and universities. So a lot of times it's difficult to be able to schedule something at this point, and I don't like to cancel things. So, you know, I've been holding off, you know, somewhere down the road. I hope to relocate the museum and put it into a uh, public-type environment and then hopefully be able to have it opened up, to have tours go through it. Did you inherit anything from Ed? Oh, gosh, I have tons of things from uh, my uncle over the years. My, actually, my very first item, uh, we were out investigating a little statue, and um, it's about three inches tall, and that's what really got me hooked on the items. Once we went to go investigate, this woman picked it up and added it to her collection, and it was moving. She would find it in different locations, and she just got totally flipped out, and on the way home, we were talking about it, and my uncle says, you want that little statue? And that's what made me start to think about it. Then I started uh, picking up different books on, you know, items that were haunted and found out that, you know, these date back just as far as uh, hauntings do. So, again, falls into the same category. But that's, that's what really got me going with uh, collecting uh, some of the things. Yeah, he got you started on it. He got yeah he, well he got me started on everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two specific things that I wanted to ask you about, and these are these are um, items that were from your um, or events that were from your the, the the show that you had, the haunted collector. Mm-hmm. And uh, one was one that really struck me was a case where this young man was having some problems, and you came in there and removed these ceremonial swords. Oh, okay, from, yeah, yeah. Uh, I believe they were from the Knights of St. John. One of them was, yes. Yeah. Now, with, with this, that, okay, they, they, there's a trick. See, you always have to remember, and it, it gets so crazy and difficult when you do TV shows because so much of uh, the things you'd like to see in them don't end up in them. But, Something um, gets lost in the edit, yeah. Yeah, that was Eric. And Jessica, um, you know, again, they were personal friends. They were paranormal investigators. And I had been working with them several months prior. Now, Eric used to clean out houses, and he got these two swords at different locations. And what had happened was when he brought the first sword in, he never really paid too much attention to it, but activity around that time framing had kicked up, and with the second sword, the same thing. He had more activity that had kicked up. So again, um, with the onset of the two swords being brought in, they were ceremonial swords. They weren't really used right. in anything but 
you have to remember also with ceremonial things, even, um, you know, for many of our military, they're used in very high, powerful, spiritual-type things, you know, where ceremonies could be done, and there's a lot of charged energy. And these are very personal things to individuals. So, again, energy can remain with them and can wreak havoc, you know, when they uh, end up in somebody else's hands. How would uh, the the secret society, this is from a secret society, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked a lot about that on the show. We've talked a lot about, about the occult. So I, I found that really fascinating that those swords had that, had that influence on what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also wanted to talk about another thing that happened was you had some water transport from one, it was like water from downstairs and it went upstairs on one of the episodes. Which episode you talking about? There was one, I think there was like a, you had some like a, it was like upstairs, um, there was some water, some like brownish liquid, and it ended up on the downstairs in a bucket. Uh, well, no, that was, okay, now I know which episode you're talking about. Yeah. You're talking about the antique, okay, that's why you confused me. Um, the antique store. Um, yeah. No, what it was, there was a bottle of elixir that was downstairs on display, and we were picking up a lot of high readings off of that. And then later on, when we had gone upstairs to investigate, uh, there was a lot of energy, and we were picking up readings around a bucket up in one of the upstairs bedrooms, and we had some of the liquid that ended up up there mixed with water. We had more water in there than anything else. So, no, that wasn't water transporting as far as, you know, just water showing up in a room and then showing up in another location. We definitely think that was deliberate, and we feel that there was more things tied in, um, again, with, with that location that some of this heavy-duty type of activity was occurring in there. Have you had that kind of water transference or just water start to come out of nowhere as in the form of rain? Oh, I've Have you ever had that happen in any cases? Sure. Over the years, I've worked on two, we call them water poltergeists, where it'll spontaneously rain in a house. And um, it's intriguing and it's very interesting as far as we all go as paranormal investigators to be able to witness and see something like that occur. There was one we worked on up here in the New England area, and, I mean, it would just literally start to uh, rain in the house. But it's not like pouring rain if you're outside walking, and it just starts dripping. It's like a whole bunch of moisture, and then things just end up getting soaking wet. I had worked on one over in Long Island, on the tip of Long Island, uh, uh, several years back, not that long ago, um, where they would just, it would spontaneously just start raining in the house. And we were witness one time where all of us, the researchers, myself, the family members, everybody was in the living room and we were preparing to eat breakfast. And uh, the grandmother basically had gotten up and she went into the other room and she goes, oh, the bed's soaking wet. And we had discovered that every one of the beds were soaking wet in the house. The ceilings were dry. The floors were dry. But, yeah, all the beds in the house were sopping wet. Mm-hmm. Is there any idea as to how that happens? Do you think it's just water is being transported from somewhere else or any other object for that matter? 
Um, you hear about the other things just like showing up mysteriously from nowhere. Um, I've heard of a story of the of the of the Bell Witch, and of course it could be apocryphal. You mean is it being materialized? Yeah, being materialized or transported from somewhere. Do you, do you have any idea what the like the the science or dynamics of that? Was? Well, that's um, one of our scientific uh, areas that we're all trying to figure out how yeah. something that is solid or you know can dematerialize in one location and rematerialize in another one. It's one of those mysteries. Boy, oh boy, I hope someday we can figure that one out. <laughs> yeah, somebody might make a lot of money off of that. You never know. Well, I don't, necessar <laughs> I don't necessarily know if a lot of money would be made off of it, but it sure the heck would answer a lot of questions for us. I know that. Right. I wanted to ask you, John, uh, about some of the more extreme cases that you've been on. We kind of talked about the haunting of Con in Connecticut and that case. I wanted to talk about some maybe others that you could think of where it was just well, like maybe like possession that was going on or it was just so violent that, you know, at a point that you might have felt threatened or in danger being in a house with this kind of thing going on. But there's one case that um, will probably always uh, be very prominent uh, within my career, and that's the story of uh, Pat Reading. And this case I worked on for four years, and um, it took 16 exorcisms to literally free her. We were very happy at uh, the last one uh, finally worked, and it broke what was happening with Pat. But that was probably the most significant as far as things happening. I mean, you name it, and it ended up happening with this woman. I mean... She was a little, little tiny thing. She was five foot one. I don't think 90 pounds soaking wet. But um, when she would fall under possession, I mean, she would gain an enormous amount of strength. She'd throw people around. She ripped up a pew out of uh, a church uh, with several people even holding her down, and she was strapped down to the pew. She ripped that, all that right up and just started pushing people around like they were rag dolls. Um, she would yeah. talk in voices in languages that just were totally bizarre and crazy uh, furniture would flip over in the house when she'd be under possession I mean it was one of the most bizarre craziest type cases that I've ever worked on and it was an extremely severe one but you have to remember when you deal with, with your negative cases it's just something that you always have to realize you get involved with these cases you don't know what's going to end up happening you don't exactly know how it will affect you but um, that that's the chance that that we take and it's um, you know that that's why I always get very concerned when I see a lot of people just jumping in and getting involved with these types of situations because a lot of times they're not prepared or you know aware of what some of the con consequences can be with getting involved with these demonic cases I mean, if somebody is throwing a church pew at you, that's pretty serious. I mean, that's those are pretty big and pretty thick. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a very old one too, so it was the, you know, it was super heavy. But like I said, they they had her strapped in, and there was five people around her, and she broke all the restraints and pulled up the. It just got that whole thing to pull right up out of the floor, and it was just totally amazing to witness something like that. Wow. So what do you do um, to assist the priest 
are the the religious practitioner um, to help with the with possession. The the key thing is that it's uh, important that an individual have some type of a foundation, and what I mean by that is your spiritual uh, well being, whether you know whatever denomination it is doesn't matter. But again, you have to have that uh, uh, framing. Now, I'm Roman Catholic, so naturally I go by our ways of doing things. I prepare myself. Uh, there's a lot of different prayers and different things that I do and basically make sure that I'm in a state of grace when we get involved with that. So again, what we mean by that is that, you know, we just make sure we go to confession, we receive communion and different things of that to prepare us to get involved with that to even just assist, let alone what the, uh, the clergy goes through. And again, you know, um, it's most important. Even if I'm assisting and doing something from another religious perspective, whether Native American, Buddhist, it doesn't matter. You still have to have your spiritual foundation, and you have to have yourself in that frame of mind when you get involved with these cases. Do you find that any of the religions are more powerful or are they just more equal because it's what the person believes and that's the foundation that they have? Not, not necessarily that the foundation is something that I've witnessed and seen. I'll tell you, I've seen, <laughs> I've seen uh, Buddhist monks, rabbis, and Native American go in and kick butt, let me tell you. They scared me more than uh, the possessed person. But very strong, very powerful rites that they use in different things that occur and happen. And they're very, very spiritual moving uh, situations when they're performing and doing um, their, their rites that they perform. So, again, I've seen very strong, powerful people probably right across the board, but i got to say Native American, Buddhist, and rabbis, I, I've just seen some really bizarre and crazy things that, you know, have taken place during them trying to do clearings. Huh. Interesting. Um, is there an object in particular that has started to work on you in a negative way? Uh, you know, have you felt anything? Or let me phrase it like this. Have you ever had to... Uh, you know, dispose of the object like we were talking about earlier. Yes, there, we were. Yeah, uh, there's been several items over the course of the years that I do not bother to bring back. And again, when you deal with something that's so significant, and you know that there's going to be major, major issues tying in with it, then sometimes it's just not worth bringing it back to put into the barn. It's just not. So that's when I'll uh, basically dispose of the item, throw it in a body of water, or bury it so that it's not going to be causing anybody else problems. Um, well, uh, what I was asking was uh, something specific, uh, you know, maybe that you wanted to keep and put on display, but you couldn't because, uh, you know, it was, it was affecting you personally. Oh, there's been swords, there's been daggers, um, some altar things from uh, different occult things that they were removed, and as we were putting them into the vehicles, we'd have all kinds of crazy things going on that I kind of wish we were able to, you know, be at that point where, you know, the bindings and the things are done over them, but I'm, 
you know, realizing at that point that these items are going to cause major problems and they're not worth keeping. So there's been, like I said, over the course of the years, many items that, um, you know, it would have been cool to keep to throw in the museum, but it just didn't go that way. And a lot of them had something to do with occult significance. That's when you're going to have your your most uh, negative experiences in, in any type of environment, whether you're dealing with voodoo, Santeria, um, any any type of practice like that, where you're drawn upon a lot of the negative energy. That's definitely going to be a main source with items because they're used in uh, the ceremonies. So therefore. A lot of things are going to occur and happen once those types of things are moved. What is ask John about what the nature of the demonic is? Uh, this is something I've been looking into lately. Do you do you believe that we're dealing with the spirits of evil people that are left here on the earth? Or are we dealing with something more like a fallen angel or an equivalent on the dark side of an angel or possibly jinn? Well, um, you have to remember that's two categories. I mean, yeah. you know, if you've got a bad haunting, it doesn't always necessarily mean that it's something evil. Because you have to remember uh, that a lot of people are evil human beings. And if they were evil in life, they're going to be like that in spirit form. So, again, you have to take your time when you're researching something before... You know, you jump in and start calling something, uh, you know, negative or demonic. And on the negative end, we have three different categories of things that we deal with. We deal with jinn, we deal with deities, and we deal with uh, demons and devils, which are considered the fallen angels. Deal with deities. All right. All right. What, 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 what do you mean by deities? That's interesting. Well, I've never I, heard it quite put that way. Really? Okay. Yeah. Uh, deities, um, again, are, you know, things that people had worshipped thousands of years ago. You know, the uh, idols, the gods, and different things from the, your Greeks and your Romans and a lot of different people. You have to remember when Christianity uh, came into play, a lot of the deities, they were assigned demon names or devil names. So, again, it's it's separate, and it's handled separately. That's why a lot of times it gets confusing um, when we do our work and different names come up. We have to research three different categories to see what these things might possibly fall into. It's the same thing with the jinn. That was incorporated into the Christianity along with the deities, and they just reassign names to them and refer to them as devils and demons. So have you ever had a case that that has um, involved one of those? Oh, absolutely. I'm working on a couple of different cases right now where we have a strong possibility we might be dealing with gin. Okay. Um, you have to be very careful with that. They're a very strong and powerful uh, type of entity. You know, it, it's only out into the forefront over the past couple of years Um where people are talking more about it. I mean, the demonology field, we've always dealt with that. To me, it's not anything new. It's always been there. But um, uh, people are more open now, so you can talk more about these things where 
people can comprehend it and understand it because the jinn is something that was created and it was here on earth before human beings were even here so therefore uh it's something that's tied very strongly within the foundation of earth and it's just something that's very strong and very powerful and extremely knowledgeable um have you ever managed to capture anything on any type of meat well obviously you said uh you were using the meters and everything getting uh readings from the objects you were talking about earlier but uh uh video media have you ever captured anything during an exorcism oh gosh yeah um we've had uh one situation um where during an exorcism it was fairly quiet and this person's eyes would start to change huh. and it just it was something that just blew my mind because I wasn't comprehending it and this person's just uh, the, their eyes turned into serpent eyes well logically I'm saying okay this guy's got some type of contact lenses that he's slipping in and out and I'm looking and just trying it happened uh, like uh, three or four different times in the very last round of the exorcism he just kept his eyes open longer and you were able to just see exactly what it was then he would blink his eyes and they'd be gone well naturally from a, a logical perspective you're going to start researching and talking to people to see if there's any way a person can push contact lenses down underneath or above and then bring them back down and from what everybody has told me no people just don't have the ability to do that not right. with both eyes they might get a contact stuck in one of them but but anyhow it you know it, when you witness something like that and you see something like that it changes your perspective because it's one thing hearing stories and reading stories in comparison to witnessing something because then you're like okay th <laughs> this happens you know yeah. this does occur so therefore it, it changes the way you you look at things and that's what's happened to me over the course of the years on looking at a lot of the things when it comes into exorcism or uh, dealing with some of these things it, it's a fact it happens it occurs and people do go through these types of scenarios that sounds pretty intense it can be. it can be yeah. i wanted to ask you john have you heard of the black eye kid Phenomenal. Yeah, everybody talks about them. I'm familiar with them. Um, you, you're, kind of a new thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, I think uh, there's quite a few of us that have seen different characteristics as far as uh, witnessing something like that. But exactly what they are or what the whole intent is, I don't think we have a clear-cut uh, answer for that. Same thing with shadow people. You know, a lot of times people witness it and they dart in and out. We don't exactly know what that's all about at this point in time, but hopefully somewhere down the road we'll know. It certainly is scary. I wanted to ask you too, John, about, um, you know, we had Rosemary on here about Jen, and I read her book about it. And uh, one of the things that, you know, really fascinates me was she was talking about, you know, alien abduction and talking about how possibly the Jen could be involved with that. And what I believe is that alien abduction is primarily like a spiritual kind of thing, similar to what people uh, people experience in these demonic or these these demonic infestations or these hauntings. Um, do you think that there may be a connection between those two? 
we can't rule it out. Um, it, to me, it's important to uh, keep an open mind across the board with anything uh, that falls into our realm of the paranormal because we don't have clear-cut answers on different things on how things could occur or how they happen. We know, and I have an understanding, that things from a religious perspective can work on individuals. But I've also seen on the flip side where somebody's been abducted and, you know, they tell me the story and, you know, you'll look at it, okay, is it going to hurt to do a deliverance or um, have an exorcism? Give it a shot, but it does nothing. So, again, you know, I look at this and trying to comprehend it and understand it, and there's so many things uh, within our field we don't quite understand. We don't have the answers as of yet. Right. Have you ever had a case that involved alien abduction going on and it turned into something else? Not so much that it's turned into something else, but uh, I've dealt with cases. I've worked with uh, researchers out there. You know, uh, we're dealing with abduction and people that have gone through some of these different things. And, again, like you are saying earlier, the parallel between a person, you know, that is going through uh, something on a negative level with something demonic in comparison to an abducted person, the parallels are right. there. And the stories are very similar. Yeah, they are, absolutely. Uh, I've asked this question before to another guest. Um, do you feel, uh, how do you feel about the balance between uh, possessions being in the nature of the mind or of an entirely spiritual nature? How does that balance work out for you? You know, logic, kind of, kind of logic versus uh, actually, actual uh, phenomena going on. Well, it's, imp it's always important to uh, rule out things. So before I would even consider a person uh, being possessed or being under oppression, it's most important, you know, hey, did they go to doctors? Have they been to psychiatrists? Are they on medications? I mean, you know, you have to look at this logically. Because, uh, again, with schizophrenia, bipolar, multiple personalities, the traits are very similar. So you've got to be very careful, and it's most important to be able to rule all those things out before I would even consider but at all even consider that this person might, you know, be possessed or they're having some major, major paranormal issues. Okay. Well, certainly something like schizophrenia and even epilepsy would have been, you know, 100, 200 years ago would have been considered people, you know, you're possessed, you know. Not even that far back, buddy. Not, yeah. even, that, not even that far back. You have to remember, it wasn't until the 1900s when people really started looking add things from uh, you know a medical perspective and they started realizing you know some of the different things that are occurring because here again the brain is a very complex thing we know very little about it and we don't know how things could be triggered or how things could occur I mean it's the same thing with uh, psychic kinetic energy you know for years everybody thought oh somebody could move something or somebody could break something it was considered evil today we know a little differently that when um, you're dealing with psychokinetic energy, it's the fact that people are tapping into certain energy that most people can't and can cause some of these things to occur and happen. Wow. So you've actually witnessed uh, inanimate objects moving with the psychokinetic energy? Oh, gosh, yes. 
yeah, poltergeist cases, uh, they're, they're fascinating. And I'll tell you, the, the reason why they're fascinating to me is the fact that it's so spontaneous and it happens so quick. It's in a blink of an eye. I mean, I've been around fire poltergeist. I've been around water poltergeist and regular type uh, poltergeist situations. You have spontaneous fires that could happen. It could start raining in a house or objects can get moved or they can get broken within a blink of an eye. And it totally, you know, it's, it's extremely fascinating what studying and trying to figure out how and why these things can occur in certain types of uh, environments. Let me ask you this. Have, have you ever been struck with something like that and uh, injured by something like that? I, uh, the key thing that I've had happen uh, several different times, it's always been during exorcisms. For some reason or another, I've no, no one's actually answered this for me yet, is that I'll end up with burn marks on my arms. Mm. And they'll go away just as fast as they come. And I think in 41 years, I've been scratched two different times. One was uh, severe on my arm, and the other, the other time was just a, a, a minor uh, scratch that I got. I mean, I've been pushed, I've been shoved, but, I mean, outside of that, that's, you know, about the major things that have occurred with me. I think if something was, was thrown at me from an unknown source or I saw somebody's eyes turn into reptilian, <laughs> I would, like, run out of the room. So you are very brave, yeah, sir. It takes a certain you constitution yeah, to have that, that job. I, I, I'll tell you what. When that occurred, that was about maybe six, seven years ago. And all those years, I would always hear the stories about it and never seen it. But I was at that, I, as I am today, I'm at that point where I, I'm not to the point where, you know, I'm like, okay, where I'm going to run from it. Or I'm really that petrified of it. Don't, I, I'm still afraid. I'm not going to tell you I'm not, because we don't have all the answers on why some of these things occur. But I'm more fascinated today with the things that occur and the things that happen, because I'd like to see answers. I'd like to get answers. And I think that, to me, is an important element. And witnessing uh, the phenomena as it's occurring and happening, I look at differently today than I used to. Do you think that there's a movement here in America to cover up uh, a lot of the possessions and hauntings going on? Today, no. <laughs> no, no, nowhere. Uh, today, everything is so open, and I think people just talk very openly uh, in comparison to even six, seven years ago. Right. I mean, my gosh, between all the TV shows and radio shows and you know, specials and the movies and everything else. People are very open now. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, you know, people know you're in the work or anything today. They they'll just start telling you stories where, you know, six seven years ago people wouldn't do that. And um, uh, no, today it's very open. Well, I think people are I think people are more hungry for this knowledge right. now. Um, you know, I'm, I know you're tired of talking about it, John. You probably get asked all the time about conjuring about your aunt and your uncle mm -hmm. but that movie is a good case i mean that came out in the middle of the summer and it was just a it was a hit you know it was like a sleeper hit and i thought it was a good movie for just the fact that it showed how things slowly progress and it showed very well how 
a possession can come come on or a violent haunting progresses. Um, the last ten minutes of it, I thought were all Hollywood. So, well, um, again, you know, um, The Conjuring based off of the Perron family, um, very good friends uh, with Andrea. Um, I did not work on the original investigation, but several years back, I had an opportunity to go in and investigate that farm. And it's a unique piece of property. There, to this date, there's uh, activity that does occur in that home. It does happen. There's been four or five different paranormal groups, to my knowledge, that have gone in there and investigated. And, you know, things do occur and happen. But you're right. It's a classic case of where you have a family that moved in. They had five little girls. And, you know, things could be dormant. Things can sit for years in houses where people just don't have any activity. You know, uh, a certain family can move in. Things could get triggered. And you have to remember the girls were all different ages. And could it be a situation where, you know, maybe one or two of the older girls were going through puberty? And we know that triggers paranormal activity. I mean, that's been proven out time and time again. So I think it, in a lot of your hauntings, when things occur and they happen, we have what I refer to as the perfect storm. And you could have a, a piece of property that's haunted. Uh, people could move in that have had paranormal experiences prior, and they're gravitated right towards these houses. They move in and paranormal activity can get triggered and can start to happen, and I refer to it as a perfect storm. We had uh, Tim Yancey on almost a couple of years ago now. Uh-huh. And uh, now that was one thing that I always, everybody was always, you know, the Amityville Horror is a good case of this. Um, everyone says, well, nothing has really happened since the what's is left in the middle of the night. Nothing's really happened. Um, but he explained that as when you get a family that is going through a bunch of turmoil, that that is going to trigger activity. That's if somebody right. comes in, maybe they're an older couple, maybe they don't have a lot of turmoil in their lives, things seem to settle down. Maybe things move around or something like that occasionally. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to – oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, uh, Am- Amity is a, uh, a good example, too. Now – was Amityville House haunted? Yes. Are the books and the movies blown out of proportion? Yes. This happens <laughs> with every one of these cases right. that turns into a movie. That's Hollywood. But, um, again, you know, the ingredients of, um, you know, having mass murders in a piece of property, you're going to have a, a tremendous amount of energy that's going to linger. Um, you know, and there's uh, several other incidences tying in. With the house, there has been other people that have had paranormal problems in that home that have just never come forward. And that's not an unusual. That that happens, too. So, again, you know, that's, you know, George Lutz, I've lectured with him several times. I've sat down and spoken to him. Uh, Christopher, I've spoken to him several times over the years on different things. So, again... You know, in all fairness, and I've always said this, no matter what show I've ever been on, people will ask me, do I feel Amityville was uh, a true haunting? My answer is yes. Is everything blown out of proportion? Yes. Just like like every other movie. They're they're all the same. You know, uh, 
in correlation with that, I was thinking you mentioned that you had a case that you were, you had had a case on on Long Island. Though you probably have had a few. Um, what is it about certain areas that lends itself to these kind of events happening? It seems like a lot of these kind of things happen on Long Island. You know, New England is another one where you're where you where you are. Um, is it just the the age of the time, the age of the, the place, uh, that it's one of the oldest parts of the United States? Is there something there in the land that causes these kind of things? Again, we I look at these things from uh, so many different perspectives. Um, anything along the waterways, we, we seem to have a lot of activity. No matter where it is, what part of the country, Give or take. Again, you got to stop and remember, you know, dating back hundreds and hundreds of years, most people migrated near water and yeah. they would live near the water. So, therefore, you know, again, it's not going to surprise me, you know, to uh, have activity. The, the one thing I always chuckle and laugh about oh, our house is ba- built on native Indian burial ground. Well, of course it is. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> You think about it, I mean, my gosh, the Indians were here for thousands of years. They had to bury them all over the place. So, yeah, it's a good possibility. So, again, you know, I, I just look at it from a perspective of looking at it where the land is. If it's a very populated uh, area for, you know, many, many years, you're going to you, you definitely probably – going to have something that's going to occur. If you got an old house that's, you know, 100 to 300 years old, there's a possibility people died or committed suicide or something in it. Well, of course. You know, they, yeah. they, these are uh, things that are just, you know, naturally occur and can happen. And you can have energy that could sit dormant in, you know, some of these buildings or land or houses, and it could just take that uh, – certain family to move in and it can trigger something trigger it all up yeah yeah um i talked about on another episode i believe before about uh, the neighborhood i used to live in uh, old hickory it's just it feels to me like the, the whole neighborhood's just saturated in this negative energy and it and it uh, started to take its toll on me after a while because i i went in there you know, pretty positive, good demeanor uh, most of the time. And then I, I noticed throughout that span that I just started getting angrier and angrier and the facets of my personality started to change. So, uh, Well, again, too, um, I always look at that uh, environmentally. You, We do have certain locations that, you know, seem to do this and, uh, uh, you know, uh, cause issues with individuals and when they leave the property they leave you know that location they're perfectly fine they go back to it they start to have problems i mean there's there's quite a few documented uh... areas out there today neighborhoods where you can have five or six houses in one location or one part of a street where they have a lot of activity or the you know it just you know doom and gloom it's very common and a lot of times if you start digging in and you start doing research on it, you might find that, okay, you know, it might have been a worshiping area or a burial area, or it could be that geographical type thing that so many of us are studying today where, you know, does it have something to do with what's in the earth right where that location is? 
and could be yeah. triggering and causing some of the things. You know, I, I never really put it together, but there was a big malaria outbreak in the late 1800s in Old Hickory, and there's, really? there's pictures in the utility district of whole, you know, carts full of bodies being carried out of the neighborhood. Whoa! I, I never really put that together until now. <laughs> now, see, but yeah, but again, it, it, it's just talking about it, and a lot of times when we talk about these issues and we we talk about some of these different things, it will trigger something. That's what a lot of times just. Remembering something helps us with uh, trying to figure out why certain areas work. You know, just look at all our battlefields and everything. I mean, yeah. you know, a lot of the energy that uh, remains doesn't mean it's negative, doesn't mean it's anything demonic, but that's where a lot of our hauntings are triggered and, you know, what we refer to today as residual haunting. Yeah, stuff like Gettysburg, places like Gettysburg would be, you know, have a lot of activity, massive amounts of activity. Tons. And, again, that's one of my most favorite places to go to is Gettysburg. I love going there. I've been going there for years and years. But, I mean, there's very few homes, very few businesses or property, you know, within that radius where there isn't some type of activity. I've investigated so many, you know, homes uh, down there. But they, they view it and look at it a little bit differently because they got a better understanding of it and don't all of them necessarily feel that, you know, it's something to, to flip out over. We've got a ton of battlefields down here in Tennessee, too. A ton of battlefields. So there's there's lots of, lots of legends, lots of you know, stuff going on here in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. John, I wanted to ask you about the, uh, put you on the spot a little bit, about the state of the paranormal today with all the TV shows and everything that's going on. How do you, do you how do you feel that the, the paranormal community is doing with all that? With, with the TV shows, I look at it as a, it's a double-edged sword for any of us that have done them or the ones that are on now. Gosh, I know everybody that just about does them, so or if I've yeah. worked with them over the course of the years. And, you know, um, I feel that it helped to bring more information out to the forefront. Um, it got a lot more people interested in the paranormal. And on the flip side of it, you know, we have what I call the hysteria, where, you know, a lot of times when we deal with cases or anything, we got to make sure that we're even getting involved with a legit case or, gee, did they just get done watching an episode of one of the paranormal shows? <laughs> so, you know, you got to be careful. But we find also, and this is prior to the TV shows, is the movies. Anytime a major, major movie comes out on, you know, something paranormal, we all find it right across the board that all of a sudden cases pick right up. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that they're all legitimately you know, hauntings or anything, but that that's common nature. Huh. Uh, you, you think I may be opening up uh, avenues for people? Uh, they're devoting energy to thinking um, about that kind of thing and it makes them more susceptible? Well, you, uh, again, it, it's not necessarily, um, well, gosh, I remember when The Exorcist came out, to, uh, the Roman Catholic Church was flooded with... Uh, People wanting exorcisms, they felt they were possessed. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's true. They they went through a, right. a, a horrific, horrific uh, event at that point in time. But uh, you know, the power of suggestion, like we said, is very strong. Do I think that you know uh, people 
can overreact, yes. So, again, that's why it's important to get in and, and see what you can um, come up with and evaluate to see if it's somebody's psychological issue or the psychological issue or is it something paranormal? I think there's a fine line there too between those. Very fine line. Extreme. Uh, John, in the time that we have left, um, tell us uh, how people can get your books that you've written, uh, where, what your web presence is, how they can get, get in uh, touch with you. Well, uh, best way to get a hold of me is just put johnsoffice.com in. Takes you into uh, my several different websites out there. My email address and everything is on there. Um, there's a store on, on one of the uh, the sites with my books and T-shirts and all that happy happy stuff. And I also post on the Facebook at um, any of the events that I'm doing or will be at over the next several months. And um, if you're able to, uh, look forward to having people come out and meeting them. Excellent. Well, John. Uh is there anything that you wanted to ask before? Uh, not think of right offhand. Okay. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on. You've been an excellent guest. I've been one of the people that I've really, really wanted to get on this show, so it's been a real pleasure. Well, I'm glad uh, we finally got it pulled together, and uh, thank you for having me on. Hey, no problem. Hey, stay on the line for us. We're just going to close out this section. And uh, guys, we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. Uh, we are back on Conspiranormal. What's that was what's up? Come on, Zach. You doing all right? Uh, I'm good. Okay. It's <laughs> our silent partner over there. Um, yeah, Zach. The interview sounded good. Whatever you did, man. I don't know uh, what you did. I mean, you were over there working your magic. A you, fine you addition have, to the you, team. You must have been possessed, possibly. <laughs> I uh, I enjoyed that interview. Yeah, did you? Yeah. yeah. The, the possession stuff's always pretty awesome since I don't know anything about it. And, yeah. yeah. Well, talking about somebody, like, throwing church pews um, <laughs> at people's heads, I mean, that's I'll, just, I'd like, love to see that. That's crazy, time. man. I mean, like, you know, I said it in the interview, but, like, if I saw that, dude, if I saw somebody's eyes change to, like, a friggin' uh, <laughs> reptilian's eyes or something I would just yeah. like I'd be gone it would definitely I'd be like I'd be like down the street man <laughs> I mean really just like you said I would it would definitely change my perspective on a few things I feel like just to see that in person because I'm still skeptical yeah everyone's gonna be skeptical until they yeah. actually see it yeah I like that we kind of we, we kind of talked about a little bit um, about the ceremonial objects. Mm-hmm. That was real interesting because that goes into everything that we've kind of we talked about with with the occult and everything. Right. And the, you know, I'm, I'm trying to really understand why something like uh, a Freemasonic um, a ceremonial sword or something like that, why that would be imbued with something with something negative. I mean that that well, almost says a lot to me. Well, I mean, you know that. Not everybody in that organization has the best intentions. Well, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that that it's almost like, you know, if all that is true, that's almost some kind of spiritual truth right. that there's something a little untoward going on. I'm, that, I'm a little worried that I might have some karmic uh, debt coming my way. It's <laughs> like that? some negative stuff. Was that um, to to do to do with the ex? Oh, you know. Some, some things okay, that I, like the things you were going to try to do. To, some, some things that I did do. <laughs> you did do? <laughs> so, so uh, 
Yeah, nobody remembers that from, uh, you can listen to our archives, but uh, Luke had uh, broken up with his girlfriend and decided he wanted to do rituals to try to mess up her life. And, you know, I was, I told him, no, don't, don't do that. It's not a good idea. Right. So, I mean, like, has anything been happening to you or? No, but I'm, I'm waiting for something to happen and, and see if, uh, see if what my original objective was actually happens. Did, did and, anything uh, come out of that? Did anything actually work? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I don't, we don't, I don't know yet. yet. I don't, I've, I've got... Well, I mean, it's been a while now, it, so... Yeah. I mean, if, it, if it does, I'm gonna... I will, I'll be shocked. I'll, I'll be... I mean, it I'll could also just be, be coincidence, too. If something happens and you all of a sudden you're... You know, it could just be a cool, big coincidence. Yeah. I mean, like, you did it now, and it's like five years later, something happens. I'm already, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, you know now, now I've kind of, like... Uh, forgave and forgot and I don't you know I'm in a half, pretty happy relationship and uh, everything's cool now so I just kind of left that in the past but you know that still doesn't change the fact that for so long I'm, you know, I was extremely bitter about it and and put and then actually you know carried out some things and <laughs> sure. yeah well be careful with what you do I mean uh, stuff has power these these kind of these kind of um, Things that you do that you put into the universe that has power. Whether, yeah. You know, you're whatever you are, whether you're a Christian or whether you believe you worship a tree. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. if you put negative thoughts out, it's going to come back to you. Right. Yeah. Well, that's that's another thing, man. Is like uh, the the negative thoughts and dwelling on thing is is one thing that could by itself, you know, no ritual included could cause problems. But then you attach the ritual to it, and it just it's kind of you know an amplifier. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to read a couple of articles and we'll get your thoughts okay. on these. One is, scientists say they have finally solved the mystery of how the Egyptian pyramids were built 4,000 years later. I read that already. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to read it. Scientists say they have finally solved the mystery of how the ancient Egyptians built the pyramids. The world has been baffled for thousands of years about just how slave workers transported the massive blocks across the Valley of the Kings in around 2000 BC. Now physicists have come up with a two-word answer after years of calculations, wet sand. Dutch researchers have figured out the Egyptians placed heavy objects on the sledge, pulled by hundreds of workers, and simply poured water on the sand in front of it. Experiments at the University of Amsterdam proved the correct amount of dampness in the sand, perhaps the pulling force required. Quite simply, dry sand would have piled up in front of the sledge, making it impossible to move. Mm -hmm. But it would glide over wet sand, which with the correct amount of water becomes as stiff as dry sand, and the sledge glides more easily over it. The team, which constructed a laboratory version of the sledge on sand, said the Egyptians were probably aware of this handy trick. A wall painting in the tomb of Jehoitotep <laughs> clearly shows a person standing on the front of the pulled sledge and pouring water over the sand just in front of it. But the research of how the ancients managed to do it could also have a modern day use to optimize the transport and processing of granular material, which at present accounts for about 10% of the worldwide energy consumption. So, what are your thoughts? Uh, Did you already read the article? Well, you've already read the article. Yeah. well uh, just thinking about it without actually executing an experiment, it doesn't seem like that would help. You know, because uh, you take wet sand, 
try to push it across something coarse and you know it's going to break off it's going to stick it's abrasive yeah. you know and you take dry sand and you can like blow it across so it, it, you know it's, it's kind of it's kind of weird but I, I can see that working too because you know at a microscopic level the sand is just little tiny bits of glass and if uh, added the water to it I think it maybe chips off and makes the grain circular well I think that they've, they've said um, many times we found how the pyramids were built and uh, this article makes it sound like this is they finally solved the mystery right. and this is how it was actually done and, and all this you know we, we had you know Chris White on one of our most popular shows with the ancient aliens debunked. Right. And he talked about several things that, you know, how these these could have been built. So I'm not saying that aliens built them, obviously. You know, I'm not that guy. But uh, <clears throat> it just seems to me that, you know, this is just one more theory, so to say that it's, you know, the final say in the matter. This, mm -hmm. I don't get it. Um, yeah, uh, Chris White's uh, documentary... Ancient Aliens Debunked. Uh, yep. Give a plug. Good yeah. old Chris. <laughs> uh, the, the explanation of, of building it from the inside out, I, I thought that was just great. And it made perfect sense. And they were talking about they had grease back then to be able to grease the sleds to slide up and down the tracks that were on the outside of the pyramid on the lower levels. It, it all made good sense. Yeah, it does. Zach, what do you think about that? Um, I thought it was a good article. I thought it made sense to me because um, I don't imagine you could just pull those huge blocks just across the sand. You'd have to have to come with something clever. Sure. Yeah. And they certainly had the manpower to do that kind of thing. That's one, but nobody yeah, really understands. Thousands of thousands of slaves. But there are but there are interesting things about the pyramid. I mean, there's interesting. Uh, you know, they uh, back in the '90s, I read a book. Uh, about it being the trace of an ancient civilization. And it is interesting how the three pyramids align basically to the, to the stars in the belt of Orion. Right. And you really can't deny that. Uh, yeah, that's true. You know, and, so and nobody can still explain what those uh, little canals and the walls are for either. You know, right. they had the metal gates like halfway, and the the the, the shafts that are in the yeah, pyramid. So what, yeah, about what exactly that is, you know, um, how that's astronomically aligned. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, we talked about it before in an earlier show. How the Sphinx was is the weathering on the Sphinx has pretty much been proven to be uh, made at a time when the when Egypt was had a had a ton of rain, so. You know, at least the Sphinx would have probably had to have been built about seven thousand years ago or something like that. Right. And so, I just think that there's probably more than one way is possible possibility that this was built. I think it was built. This complex at Giza was built over an extremely long period of time. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I, I still haven't uh, abandoned my thoughts on uh, them having. Uh, extraterrestrial or you know some kind of uh, deity helping them along the way yeah and you know that that goes back to what uh, uh, John was saying about deities that really was like that amazed me because I never had thought about that before when he brought that up that there's deities that 
and to me that was that to me that's the same as the fallen angels but the fact that there's deities that are no longer worshipped that I guess that are mad or something you know that was yeah. an interesting concept right um, it seems to me like I've, I've given it a lot of thought and it seems to me that as long as you have you know maybe like a hundred plus people that are all giving offerings and praise to the same uh, idol you know yeah. figure that it, it has to have a, a base of worship to actually have the power to to um, to comp- to fulfill people what people want from that God. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was uh, it, it, that he's encountered these kind of things is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's get serious here, guys, because there is a new study that came out well back in January. So it's not incredibly new, but I think it's momentous. And that's the fact that dogs relieve themselves in line with Earth's magnetic field. (laughs) Dogs are quite particular about where they choose to relieve themselves. Not only do they defecate in direction with the north-south axis, but they also are sensitive to light changes in the Earth's magnetic field. A new study published in the journal Frontiers in Zoology finds that a wide range of canines prefer to excrete with the body being aligned along the north-south axis under calm magnetic field conditions. The nearly 37 breeds of dogs studied were found to completely avoid urination or defecation along an east-west direction. The study is the first time that magnetic sensitivity was proven in dogs, although previous research has shown that many mammals spontaneously align their body axis with Earth's magnetic field in a diverse range of behavioral contexts. Examination of 70 dogs over two years, including 1,893 defecations and 5,582 urinations, revealed that dogs who were not leashed or influenced in movement were naturally inclined to relieve themselves in axial orientation with the Earth's magnetic field. The study did not detail exactly why this phenomenon occurs. It is still enigmatic why the dogs do align at all, whether they do it consciously i.e. whether the magnetic field is central, perceived, the dog see, hear, or smell the compass direction, or perceives it as a haptic stimulus, or whether its reception is controlled on the vegetative level. They feel better, more comfortable, or worse, less comfortable in a certain direction. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that there's a part of, I, you know, I, I don't know the specific part of the brain, but I think there's a part of the brain that uh, instinctually... Uh, can feel the magnetic field in, in, in humans and animals alike. Yeah. I, don't know, I have no basis, in, you know, to prove that or anything. But and animals just naturally gravitate towards it. Mm-hmm. Well, there are, there are tons of things animals can sense that we can't. Like, you know, lots of animals can sense like tornadoes and earthquakes and hurricanes right. yeah. that we can't. Birds will all so. uh, leave the scene before a hurricane. And yeah, so it may be earthquake. something like that. Well, you know, uh, how'd you like to be the per- people that had to examine the do- 70 dogs and watch them <laughs> Take, defecate, notes on defecate the, on the and shoot. urinate? It, it, <laughs> just, it just makes me think of a bunch of white coat Germans just like walking around. Oh, yes, this is very interesting. With the little spectacles <laughs> in their eye. Oh, it is alive to 20 degrees north this evening. They, yes. they get down with like, like tape measures and like, like compasses and stuff. It was a a beautiful defecation. Oh, yes. Great job. 
<laughs> well, since we're talking about defecation, uh, how about uh, how about Taco Bell? About this, you, you were talking to something um, about Taco Bell earlier, right? I, I don't know if I've ever mentioned it before. And that I'm, was a good segue, by the way. Nice segue. So, where you go from one thing to another. Oh, oh, oh yeah, excellent, Adam. Good job. Vocabulary. <laughs> anyway. Dude. So, so you know, I, I I know a lot of our listeners will uh, agree with me that Taco Bell. I hate to call them out too on the show, but Taco Bell's food is addictive. It does. Yeah. It's in. I love their food. And for a long time, I didn't really, uh, you know, put much thought into it. And I was like, ah, oh, well, you know, it's it's just good. They just got a good recipe or whatever. But you know, I started to kind of question myself because I got angry at the drive-thru a few times, like those videos, you know, about McDonald's and everything that we've been watching. Oh, yeah, the one that's, uh, the, the woman that uh, goes crazy because she couldn't get her chicken nuggets yeah. at 5.30 in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> that one, and then the, the new one that just surfaced about the, the naked chick behind the counter yeah, everything yeah, apart. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I, I, obviously I've never gotten to that level before, but... <laughs> McDonald's is putting crack in their burgers, apparently. But, uh, you know, in Mount Julia one time, I was going to order, and it wasn't right. They didn't get my order right, you know, and I, I blew up. Like, I went out of control. <laughs> you fly into a rage? Yeah. And, and, then, and then after, I was just like, why did I do that? You know, so I, I started doing some research, and and uh, I didn't I didn't read up on this before we started the show, but it's it's a sugar that starts with a T. It's like uh, triculose or something like that. I have to look it up again, but uh, it, it's, it actually... Alter, it, it alters uh, uh, neurochemistry in the brain, and it, it is addictive. It's chemically addictive. Well, I think I want some Taco Bell now. <laughs> I, can, I can see that because I've, I've been, you know, like trying to go to Taco Bell and maybe they're closed or whatever and get like really mad about it. Exactly. Like, oh, gosh. Well, and, then after, and then afterward, you got, you really got to think about this. It's, it's uh, you know, my favorite thing to order is a cheese quesadilla. Mm-hmm. So um, it's just a cheese quesadilla, man. It's just uh, other chicken quesadillas. Yeah, it's just tortilla and cheese on it. Like, why am I this upset? Yeah, yeah. like you could make that at home, right? In just a few minutes. Oh, well, was it like I remember something that happened where um, they you know, Zach brought up the chicken quesadilla uh-huh. and they changed their chicken and it was just like terrible to you. Uh, yeah, it, t- it tasted like detergent or something. Yeah, it tasted like lemon <laughs> kitchen cleaner. When, when they put, yeah, when, when they put the citrus in, because I was so used to, yeah, I got the chicken all the time before they introduced that lemon citrus crap. They put that in there, man. It, it ruined it. Yeah, I, and I actually I haven't had it since then since you told me to not eat it. So, and it, and I never get heartburn from anything, and that gave me heartburn. Yeah, <laughs> Luke is one of those guys that will go will go eat places and. Uh, like things will steadily get crossed off the list because he looks up yeah. all the ingredients. That or, or it just or it makes him want to sleep. Like the what was it? You went to Sonic, Sonic or something? Yeah, I, I called Sonic sleep. corporate and complained, and I got <laughs> yeah. He'll call he'll call the corporate offices and complain to them that I, you know what's, what's in your food. Yeah, I I, I believe that uh, <laughs> that people should be angrier about it. You know, a lot of people will go to, to White Castle or something like that, and then their stomach will feel terrible the rest of the night. It'll be worthless. Yeah, and you know they'll just be like, oh well, well I guess I just won't eat there for a while. Well, you know, there's this whole big thing about like what two months ago about Subway. They were putting this plastic 
yeah, yeah. Derivative in their in their food. Are you talking what? about the azote Yes, that's yeah. what I'm talking about. That, it's like something been, that's banned in Europe, right? In every country except for U.S. And but the food companies are all uh, jumping on the bandwagon now and getting rid of the AZO because there's so many people uh, becoming you know health gurus. Yeah, I was listening to that. Uh, Al, listening to Alex Jones. And, it had the, uh, the, the, what is her, the food girl? Oh, yeah, the yeah. food babe. Yeah, the she, food babe. She's getting, real, she's getting yeah. really popular. I've got her on my, my stream. Um, sometimes these, these people take some stuff out of context, and they make ingredients seem more dangerous than they actually are. Right. And the point the FDA always tries to make is that there's a very small, small percentage in the food. But like we were saying that time, it, it collects, it adds up like a residue, you know. All of these things together, not just one ingredient specifically causing all the problems, but every little bad poison and toxin together is what's causing problems in people. Why do you think they put this this kind of stuff in the food? <clears throat> well, uh... I mean, you know, man, I know it's like Alex Jones and It's, stuff, it's just know? all it's, sales. It's all... Uh, it's all about sales to me. That That's my perspective. It's all sales. Because... Right. Um, at first, I thought it was maybe like population uh, control. No, no, like not on that. Things. I, just, I just thought it. I thought it was um, an experiment to to see how these food chemicals would interact with us. But now I see that it's just all about sales, because the thing that the all of the bad ingredients that you look up, they're all just uh, in an effort to save the company money. Right. And they just they wanna they wanna get you addicted to their food, exactly. like sell more. Yeah. Keep you keep you coming in. Right. Yeah. Ad- addiction and cheaper. That's right. what that's what they're concerned with. So that they can have their customers occasionally go nuts on them and trash their store. <laughs> like that video the video with the chicken nuggets lady is like, didn't you point out that she was uh she was acting like a Dragon Ball Z character. Yeah, she, she said, don't make me assume my final form. Completely insane. I think I might isolate that and put that in the, uh, put that as the beginning of the show. <laughs> well, um, two weeks from now, this is episode 48. Next week I'm going to do a show. Tom Bionic is going to be uh, talking to us. It probably may just be. I don't know if you're going to be here because that's Mother's Day. Yeah, um, I, yeah I probably won't. Maybe out, but uh, so that will be episode 49, and episode 50 will be our episode 50 party. Ooh, keg party. That's right. We're gonna have a, we're gonna have a keg party. Conspiranormal keg party. Conspiranormal keg party. Invites have been sent out on Facebook. And uh, we're going to have a, uh, we'll have an interesting cast of people in here. Uh, We're going to have, well, we're going to have some people as guests. We're going to have Robert Hyde. We'll have Dr. Feature. Uh, They may or may not stay for the party. See if Dr. Feature will do a keg stand for us. (laughs) And uh, we'll try to, uh, also Guy Malone's probably going to be here, though he may be here later. Uh, and uh, talking to the Tennessee Wraith Chaser guys and Mr. Joe, otherwise known as Prime, ah, will be here. So that's going to be that out. that's going to be the interesting one, <laughs> Mr. <laughs> otherwise known as Prime. That's right. <laughs> Talk about all his strange experiments and his uh, finding ghosts yeah, in I've, the ether. I've, and I think it's great. I think I've said before too that um, pretty much everyone you meet on the street has some kind of 
yeah. paranormal story to talk about almost every single person. And that's what we're going to do. Pretty much going to do like two shows. We're going to do we're going to do a roundtable, a couple roundtable discussions, and then we're going to have everybody. People are going to come in one by one or two by two, and they're going to tell their own paranormal experiences. Cool. And we're going to put that on it. Probably everybody will be probably pretty trash. So it's probably going to be really hilarious. <laughs> Get us kicked off French Radio Network. Uh, so, but uh, if there's anything else you guys want to talk about, I think we'll call it a night. I know you guys are pretty hungry. Go, go get some Taco Bell. Oh, yeah, well, so. I can't wait. Yeah, go get some. Uh, I can't wait to be groggy the rest of the night. <laughs> All right, well, you guys, uh, everybody have a good night. Thanks for listening. And thanks to John's Office for coming on. And uh, we'll be right back. We'll be back next week on Conspiranormal. Woo! <laughs>